Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Got your notes? Awesome. Great. So, uh, welcome to the first full day of our New Year's retreat. Um, the first day is always like a mix of tiredness, overwhelm, uh, getting used to a new diet. The kitchen also getting used to how to feed you. Too much, not enough, etc. Um, and so that's how it goes. Um, and uh, everybody's doing great, even if it feels like you're a mess or uh, uh, not used to sitting. But uh, all that will come together, you'll see, at some point in the next 10 or 20 years <laughs> practice. Uh, in the olden days, when you entered a monastery like this, uh, you entered for life. Uh, you came into the monastery gates, you gave up your possessions, you donned robes, and that was it. You were in. And for us, uh, we don't uh, commit to life in that particular way. We just come here for a period of time, and then we go back into the world again. And I love that aspect of practice, that we go out into the world, we do the practice, it starts to get a little wonky, it needs some refinement, our hearts build up plaque. Uh, we find ourselves not able to forgive others. We find resentment building in our relationships. We find we discover new emotions as we age that maybe we haven't uh, felt or haven't felt as deeply. And uh, we find that um, the values that we have, like wanting to be more aware of uh, joy and appreciation and gratitude uh, just aren't there. So we have to leave sometimes the lives that we've uh, become comfortable in 
or for some of us, the lives that are currently falling apart, or both. Some of us are really comfortable when our lives are falling apart and, um, and uh, come into a space like this um, to hold us in practice and um, to enter this space to learn uh, these uh, traditional practices like sitting still. and making a connection again with our deepest vows, like serving all beings, including this being. I don't mean me, I mean <laughs> including <laughs> That was really weird. <laughs> you'll go home and you'll be like, it really was a cult. <laughs> you wouldn't believe what he said on the first day. And sitting still is the spiritual uh, legacy of the Buddha. And that's the lineage that we practice. That every once in a while we need to uh, leave the busyness or the chaos of our life and uh, sit still. In the Zen tradition uh, that informs some of what we do here, which is Dogen's uh, style of practice. Uh, Dogen describes meditation as dropping away body and mind. And I've always found it interesting how some translators say meditation is dropping away body and mind, and some translators say Dropping away body and mind is meditation. I like both. Uh, shin in Japanese is body. Uh, jin is mind. Datsu uh, is to uh, take something off, like taking off clothing. And raku is uh, to let something fall down. So meditation is like uh, unbuttoning your shirt and just letting it fall to the ground. I like this image a lot. So in meditation practice, we keep harmonizing with our breathing. We keep harmonizing our attention with the breathing body. And then, whatever our ideas are about our body, they just start to fall away. We're still in a body, it's still somatic, but our ideas about our body start to fall away. And all the mental constructs that we call mind also start to fall away. We still have a mind, they're still thinking, but it moves into the periphery. And all the essential practices that we need are here in this monastery, are here in this building. First, 
day in and day out, we're with the same people every day for five days. Sometimes it feels like not enough time, and sometimes it's a long time to be with the same people. And as you focus more and more on this retreat and just uh, stay in the present moment more and more, you'll start to see that the combination of being present and the combination of other people, along with uh, the various forms that we're engaged in, uh, will not allow you to hide. It will become harder and harder uh, to hide. And the more and more you try and hide, or take shortcuts, the more you stand out, and the more your habits will stand out. So this way of practice encourages us to open, to open, to open, to open. And when we start shutting down, we open to the experience of shutting down. And that's a really important skill for all of us to have, I think, is to know when your heart is open and know when your heart is shut down. And when your heart is shut down, you don't be naive and say, open, open. No, you just honor that you're shut down. And in honoring that you're shut down, you're open to the shutting down and you're awake. If you're shut down and you're awake to being shut down, then you're awake. Being awake doesn't have to look like one mood. It doesn't mean you're happy. I mean, lots of you are awake and you're not happy. <laughs> And we all have habits that are like rough edges. I was thinking about this when I was walking across the bridge looking at the water today, at all the river stones, you know, and how they, they come down the landscape as these small rocks with rough edges. You can see some of them poking out of the grass and snow. And by the time they make it into the center of the river, they have smooth edges. And it's like that with us here. Each of us has rough edges, and we keep mixing together and mixing together and mixing together, and it smooths out some of the rough edges. It doesn't mean we're all the same. That's not what I mean. I just mean that the habits of the practice start to smooth out some of the rough edges that get brought up, not just by stillness, not just by movement, but also through the relationality that happens in this environment. Which, as some of you might already realize, is, wow, it's very, very intimate without even speaking. So like the, these rocks in the river, we, we get polished. None of you will become perfectly polished. Well, maybe a few of you will become perfectly polished. It's not interesting to try and become a jewel or something. Like, yeah, I'm going to be a jewel. <laughs> Just another stone. And then you learn how to uh, feel kindness in your heart, how to accept what's happening in the present moment. 
And you can feel this acceptance and this kindness even cleaning restrooms, even cooking. It might look on the outside like you're cleaning a toilet, but also you can be doing this with a warm heart, serving others. We have to clean the toilets. We have to chop the food. We have to chant the Heart Sutra. Everybody gets a different practice position, and none of them are more important than the other. They're just different positions. And they change year to year. When you walk, it's really important that you're connecting the walking meditation to the walking around in the building. So when you walk, connect your feet with the floor and let the floor connect with your feet. So be aware if you're um, landing really hard on your heels and sending kind of shock up through your body. This is even true for the servers during the Oriyoki meals. When you're carrying a pot, notice like how high you're carrying it, how low you're carrying it, what your feet are doing on the floor. And really keep mindfulness in the, in the walking. Can I feel the floor when I'm walking? Am I creating a disturbance when I'm walking? These are really important things to, to look at. When I pass a dish during the meals, notice there's a lot of passing. Am I really bowing to others? It's so easy to miss bows when we're serving food at the table. So one thing you might try is um, before you bow, you put, let's try this together. Before you bow, you, you put your palms together and feel them together, this kind of gathering, sense of gathering, and then bow. Yeah. So it's like, am I really bowing to that person? Am I really appreciating that person? This, am I really um, acknowledging the sacredness of this moment? Or am I just going through the motions? Because I'm supposed to. If you and the other person are bowing at a different rhythm, there's no connection happening. It's a missed connection. And I think maybe you can feel that. It's like the bowing doesn't quite add up, and it's a missed moment. So see if you can synchronize your bows. And maybe one way, this is not traditional at all, I've just kind of made this up, but maybe something we can all do over the next few days is before we bow, we place our palms together. So it's like two different movements. There's one movement, because this movement creates intention for us, but it also sends a signal to the other that this is starting already. Do you know what I mean? And that way, there's like a signal so they know a bow is coming. And then, if it's a missed connection, so what? Doesn't matter. It's a missed connection. That's also a connection. So don't worry about it. So if you're feeling like, shit, I missed the connection. I'm not going to be a polished jewel. And I hope Michael didn't see that. Um, doesn't matter, you'll get it next time.
there's misconnections all the time. When you open and close doors, let's open and close doors with full attention, as quietly as we can. If you lock a door, really paying attention to locking a door. When you wash your hands, feel the water on your hands, feel the water on your face. When we use our eating bowls, uh, pick them up and put them down really quietly. Is that happening yet? I'm not sure. But as quietly as you can. And again, if you drop one, it doesn't matter. You drop one and you start again. It's kind of fun. If you're doing something that you don't like, slow down, pay attention, and keep returning to your deep, calm, equanimous mind, moment by moment. And just harmonize your breathing with what you don't like. Maybe on the first couple days, there's some part of what we do here that you don't like. I don't eat tempeh. It's not my thing. I don't understand it. I eat tempeh once a year when Gretchen makes tempeh. It's not my favorite thing. I still can't figure out what it is, what the taste is. <laughs> is it fermented? Is it not fermented? What does it come from? Anyways, so somebody will have to explain this to me one time. But you just keep abiding, even if it's something you don't like, in the samadhi of equanimity. And then uh, the years pile up, and the snow comes and goes, and the lake freezes and unfreezes. Time passes. And there's a training of our heart that goes on underneath all of our liking and disliking. So I asked you last night if you could use this retreat as a time to cocoon, as a time to go inward, and as a time to um, find out in yourself uh, what's important, um, who you are, what it feels like to be in your life. I remember this when I was young. The question I always had was, who am I? I always had this question when I was young. I remember when I was 14 smoking pot and staring into a mirror at myself, trying to like find me, like behind everything. Like trying to find an authenticity and just not getting anywhere with that. And then turning to philosophy, you know, still not finding something. You know? And then I remember so clearly the first time I went to a formal meditation retreat. And I remember the first session in the first five minutes having this kind of vivid 
realization that you can look out with your mind, but you can look at your mind functioning. And when you look at your mind functioning, when I looked at my mind functioning, it wasn't possible to find a me that was behind all that. It was just like mind and sensations and colors. And I remember just the first five minutes of retreat, the rest of the retreat, I think I was just like thinking about all kinds of stuff. But I remember just the first five minutes, just really seeing how like mind doesn't have a location or a core. There isn't like a me behind the scenes there. And our practice is just to track what's happening and track what's happening and track what's happening. And keep staying in your body. And sometimes as you're tracking what's happening, your body will start to relax because you're always trying to find this balance between tranquility and vitality. So you want to keep relaxing to get tranquil but you want to keep vitality in your body. As soon as you start losing track of your body, then um, uh, things can get sluggish or a little bit dissociated. And sometimes the beginning of dissociation is kind of trippy. And it feels like, oh, I'm getting into samadhi. But really, you're losing track of your body. So you want to keep staying aware of your breathing a body as you start to calm. And then as you do that, sometimes you find like these weird habits. Like one thought you just, just can't drop. It just keeps coming back again and again and again and again and again. Or maybe there's like a habit in your body. You know, like maybe there's a, a tick that you have or something. Or your body wants to kind of like move. Some people they want to do like circles or... Or, or like you really want to itch something even. Or, and the interesting thing about really staying with that is you, you kind of stretch out the time and you just start tracking those sensations to gather information about them. And that's something about stillness that you don't get in movement practices so much. Is that sometimes you need the energy to build without releasing it in any way. You know, sometimes you get like uh, discomfort in your spine and so you just kind of like crack your back. You, know, you don't think anything of it. But in meditation, sometimes we have this discomfort and so what we do is we, we just let it build and build and build and build and build. And we gather information about it. And then it usually changes. I've been working with this a lot lately because I have this habit where my eyes dilate a lot and it's totally, it's like neurological, like I can't access it consciously. Sometimes my eyes get very big and it's like they're focusing. And some people interpret it as like I'm very spiritual, <laughs> you know, and, and other people think I'm not paying attention to them sometimes when they're talking to me. And I've even had people think that I'm rolling their, my eyes at them. And sometimes when I'm tired, I also get like a little 
shaking in my left eye like a thing. And I haven't noticed it that much, but lately I've been noticing it more because I've been doing a lot of stuff on film. And I can't bear it, but sometimes I have to look at it. And I start to see that my eyes do these funny things. It's really embarrassing. And I can't, like, access it. So, um, I keep telling people around me, I told this to Rose, I'm like, please tell me when I do that so I can, like, catch it. So, lately in meditation, I'm starting to be able to feel when it happens. It's usually when I'm a little bit tired. And I notice that my, my eyes will kind of change in dilation just as my left occiput will get tense. And when that happens, my right shoulder moves forward. And then when that happens, my eyes get bigger. And I've been feeling all of this in uh, meditation practice. And then uh, I was telling someone this and they said to me, that's what happens when you fall backwards. Those are all the movements of falling backwards. And then I was hit with a lot of emotion around like some memory of, of different things that have happened to me in my, my life. And, but all because of the mindfulness practice. Right? It's like you're tracking your body. And that's a little different than in psychotherapy. Like in psychotherapy, you might find that in your body and then you might start associating to it. Like, oh yeah, that reminds me of that time. And, and you might just miss how long you can sustain your attention in tracking patterns. And that's what we're doing in meditation practice. Just tracking the pattern, learning the pattern, before we jump out of it with an explanation or an analysis or whatever you do with it. And most of us, when we get into unpleasant feelings or semi-conscious sensations, we just don't know how to stay with it for long enough to kind of let it move through us so we can learn how to accept especially negative emotional states. Like radically accept negative emotional states. Like radically accept impatience, you know. Sometimes we just like, I always say to the timekeeper on retreat, when you pick up the baton to ring the bell, first touch the bell and take a deep breath. Because so many people in the room are projecting really negative energy towards you. <laughs> Impatient energy. I'm sure none of you are doing this, but it happens on retreat. So just stop and take a deep breath and slowly ring the bell. It's not like sadistic, like, I'm going to hold it here for a while. You know. So all this is to say that uh, we're using this practice to really learn how to take care of ourselves and how to bring peace to our minds and bodies, even if this happens really slowly. And although maybe this is different than some other teachings and some other lineages, but meditation does not make you special. 
And meditation does not solve all of your troubles. But what it does is it it situates you right in the center of your life. And it does it again and again and again and again. It puts you right in the center of your own life. So that you learn how to be willing to fully live your life. And what's special about retreat is you're learning how to fully live your life in each moment with others, with other people. Our awareness is 50-50, right? It's 50% here and 50% here. That's what we're training. And this happens through constant practice. If you want to deepen your practice, yes, there's techniques for your cushion. There's no doubt about it. But no matter what new techniques you learn on your cushion, and some of you are doing all kinds of different techniques that you've learned over the years, you always need to take those techniques into your walking and into your eating and into your communication. And what's great about retreat is you can practice all this moment to moment to moment to moment. Over and over and over and over. A monk once uh, asked his uh, teacher, does a baby have the sixth consciousness? And the teacher said, a ball, it's like a ball thrown into a river. So, in uh, Buddhist psychology, there are six consciousnesses. The first uh, five are uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, like based on the sense organs. But because in Buddhist practice, um, the thinking is that your mind is a sense organ, there's a sixth sense organ, a sixth consciousness, which is thinking. Because your mind is kind of like a sense organ, isn't it, right? The nose is aware of smells coming and going. The mind is aware of of thinking that's coming and going. And this is an interesting question, but a little bit academic, you know. Does a baby have mindfulness of their mind? Think about a baby, wide eyes, just like, it's taking everything in, such fresh beginner's mind. There's a saying in the old Zen koan texts, when someone passes a koan, the teacher used to sometimes say, uh, now the eyes of a baby. Now they have the fresh eyes of a baby. And we all know in practice, once in a while, you see something new, you have the fresh eyes of a baby. And then very quickly, it gets covered up and manipulated. So does a baby have sixth consciousness? Well, the teacher has a great, the teacher's not going to say yes or no, because there wouldn't be a teaching, right? The teacher says, Joshu, says, um, 
it's like a ball thrown into a river. Can you picture like a beach ball gets thrown into the river here? And it just kind of moves, finds its way. In other words, the teacher is saying like, it's not the best question, right? <laughs> like, like it's not really the best question. Like if you want to know in your embodied experience what it means to have mindfulness of mind, it's not whether mindfulness of mind is the sixth consciousness. It's whether being able to be mindful of mental states can be a movement like falling away of body and mind, can be a movement like the ball on the river, sometimes against the snow, sometimes moving quickly, sometimes ruminating, sometimes dipping under the water, sometimes joyful. Have you seen these mental states today? Right? This, then that, then something else. And being able to move with that is the sixth consciousness. Well, anyways, the student didn't get it at all. This happens so much in these stories, you know? It's like the first time the student asks this amazing question, the teacher gives a great answer, and the student totally doesn't get it. So um, many years later, the teacher goes to, uh, the student goes to another teacher and says, um, I asked my first teacher if a baby had the sixth consciousness. And the teacher said, it's like a ball thrown into a river. How do you understand that? And the teacher responded and said, moment to moment, nonstop flow. And then he understood. Moment to moment, nonstop flow. Screw up in the Oriyoki practice, it's flow. So let it go. Leave it alone. It doesn't matter. Have you made a mistake in the Zendo? The first day I made so many mistakes. I chanted the life and death are of supreme importance <laughs> during the meal chant. <laughs> so many mistakes. So, it's okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Some of you really love the forms that we do here. Uh, or you've come to love the forms and you see their value. And for others, maybe it's a bit much. All this bowing and everything, you know. But once you follow the forms, uh, you won't think about it anymore. It just becomes natural and you can really be free in the forms, even on a shorter retreat like this. You can really find freedom in the schedule, freedom in bowing, freeing, fr freedom in eating like this. And keep bringing your attention to bowing. Bowing is another way of practicing moment to moment, nonstop flow. When you bow to someone, you're appreciating them. 
You're appreciating the timekeeper. You're appreciating the cook. You're appreciating the food. And just think about how much is going on in some of the people around you and how great that is for your practice. You're feeling all agitated in the zendo and there's someone sitting to your left. You're feeling all confused, there's someone on your right. You're feeling kind of lonely, there's someone right across from you bowing. Maybe you missed the bow because you're so long, so lonely. And other people are helping us visibly and invisibly. So bowing is an expression of gratitude and it's teaching us how to be grateful every moment for what's right here. And in capitalist culture, late capitalist culture, practicing gratitude and appreciation is like so radical, I think. That other people aren't objects to have or to manipulate or to get beyond or above. We're here enacting a different energy different kind of community. Also, we bow to the room, sanctifying the room. You bow to your seat, sanctifying the seat. You bow to your bowls, sanctifying the bowls. It goes on and on and on. And hopefully, when you leave here, you'll like bow to everyone on the airplane. <laughs> you get to the toll booth. And what a privilege it is to have enough support and leisure time and health that we can practice being grateful for all these little details and not running around. We're not trying to transform the whole world. A monastery like this for a few days is not a place to try and make dramatic political change. It's a place to learn how to engage your life thoroughly, to look at your greed, to look at your anger, to look at some of your delusions, so that when we go out into the world, we're more open to feedback, to seeing bias, to learning about how we function. And everything we do here is done 50-50. 50% awareness here, 50% awareness in other people. And I hope that the 50-50 plus the bowing, plus the fact you're going to lose a little weight, eating less, Um, is going to really help others. So, moment-to-moment non-stop flow means is your mind right on the moment? 
Our bodies are always present. Our minds are not always so present. And things go so much better when they're lined up. So that's why I keep saying meditation is somatic meditation. It's somatic practice. Being present is an embodied practice. And God knows, oh, I've never said that before. That was really good. And God knows. <laughs> See, secretly, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a rabbi. But like, there was just no way that was gonna work out. So it just slipped out, it just slips out. And God knows. I don't even know what I was gonna say after that. I just said it. <laughs> And God knows we need to be alert right now. We need to strengthen ourselves. We need to learn how to awaken with other people. Uh, we need to have enough uh, energy and internal resources to protect people who are fragile or who don't have a voice. And may we use the power of this practice to do really good things. Also to be aware that Moment-to-moment non-stop flow means not holding on to this moment either. Time is always leaving us. Time's always passing. And that reminds us that uh, we're living and also we're dying right now. Each moment is here for such a short time. That's always like one of the kind of insights that stays with me on retreat. It's like each moment is here for such a short time. So it's like retreat is like we draw this and so we draw this circle in our lives and we say, okay, I'm cutting out <laughs> this time in December and January to go into this practice. And you come into this circle and, and, and you learn how to get really close to the present moment, to become the present moment, and also not to hold on to the present. Because you don't know which way your life's gonna go. So you need to learn not to hold on so tight. When I was on the airplane on the way here, I was reading a biography, a long article, which was a biographical article about uh, Sharon Jones, who died this year. Anybody know her, her music? Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings was her, her band. I didn't know a few things about her. One of them was that she, uh, that her band was the band that was Amy Winehouse's band. So I didn't know that like when Amy Winehouse had her big like back 
Back to Black, is that what it was called? That was her band. But they weren't famous yet as Sharon Jones and the Dot Kings, but that, that was her band. And, um, and then um, uh, she was, throughout all, all this time, she had never been able to get any kind of record deals. Um, and she was, right up until her album came out, that did really well in the last decade, um, she was a prison guard at Rikers Island and worked in the prison there for her whole, her whole life. She was a prison guard there. And um, apparently, uh, uh, there are lots of uh, photographs of her recording the first, the, the record that most of you know if you know her music, still wearing the outfit, because she had come from work every day and gone into the recording studio. And I thought, well, this is an amazing story, this woman, you know. And then, uh, and then just at the peak, she found out she had uh, pancreatic cancer. And she uh, uh, had all her hair shaved, she went through chemotherapy, etc. Um, she had a big surgery, and then um, she stayed alive for a couple more years, performed as much as she could. Uh, and it was really important to her that she performed in high heels while she was ill. And then she died. And I was reading this and reading some of her uh, quotes from some of her interviews while she was ill. And she was just so passionate about music. That's what kept her going. And she saw music and her work as the same thing, as this form of service. And when I was reading it, I thought, wow, you just don't know how your life is going to go. Imagine decade after decade, until you're in your 50s, your biggest love is music, and you cannot get a record deal. She said that the reason why she couldn't get a record deal is over and over again, they said that as a lead singer, she was too heavy. This is what they said to her. And then she made a joke. She said, you know, now that I've gone through chemotherapy, I'm not as heavy anymore. <laughs> and then right at the peak of your career, you find out you only have a short time to keep going. So in some ways, we can all relate to this in our totally unique ways. The thing is, is that moment-to-moment um, -moment non-stop flow means that every moment is dying. Every moment is passing away. So it's really important that when we come to places like this and come to practice like this, we really drop in so we can feel what we need to do to stabilize our lives. Because we may not get some of the things we want or some of the things we think we need to stabilize us. Like how many incredible, you know, writers and artists don't get the grant? And how few get the grant? 
and how much of success nowadays in our culture is because of luck, just luck, so much luck. So we need more internal barometers for what's of value and what's important. And although it might seem like a stretch, all of this bowing and all of these chopstick maneuvers and all of this folding all helps us recover our basic values. So I just wanted to read you to end a commentary about this uh, story I told you. Do you remember the story? Does a baby have sixth consciousness? And the teacher says, it's like a ball thrown into a river. And then the student's like, And then he goes to another teacher says, you know, can you help me understand? You know? And the teacher says, moment to moment, nonstop flow. And this is your this is your mantra. Until the talk tomorrow. And I'll give you another one. Is how to practice right in this moment. Right in this moment, not holding on, just here and here and here when you're walking, when you're carrying things when you're brushing your teeth. So at the end of all these old Zen stories, there would be somebody who would write a commentary or a poem. And here is the uh, commentary on this story. The person who studies this path must again and again be like an in, become like an infant. Then praise and blame, success and failure, favorable and unfavorable environments, none of these can move them. Isn't that nice? If you become again and again like an infant, then these things were caught up in so much, measuring ourselves, blaming ourselves, having like internalized ideas of success, that are borrowed from a really insane paradigm. So when you sit in the meditation posture, sit in the meditation posture and let body and mind follow it. And see how all states of mind contain freedom. You can be free in pain you can be free in confusion. You can be upset and you can be aware of being upset and you can be free in being upset. It's just being upset. <coughs> so that this turns into a full life practice.
full life practice. It's continuous. So every time you get confused, what am I doing? Or I've seen some of you a few times during the meal, like just staring. Like especially when we're like waiting, like the water's not here yet. So it's like you just start going into your like, I don't know what's going on for you, but I can guess. And just like try and wake up in that. Like wake up in that. And just see that. And, 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 and be awake in that. And if you make an error, there's no, like, you're not going to get punished. <laughs> by, there's no, well, actually, in some places there are, but here there's no, like, person that's going to come around and punish you. You just, it just let it die and come back home again. Moment to moment, non-stop flow. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.